Broadcasting from the UNMC College of Nursing, get ready for RN Huddle, the podcast dedicated to bringing hot topics for and by nurses to the table. Well, hello there and welcome to RN Huddle. This is your host, Heidi Keeler, coming to you from the great state of Nebraska. And today's episode is in acknowledgement of the National Pressure Injury Prevention Day. And we wanted to do something special, so we've invited a very incredible guest on our show today. We are going to be talking with Dr. Joyce Black. And for those of you who know anything about wound care, you know that she is an internationally renowned wound expert and researcher. And she is also one of our very own UNMC faculty members, and she has been so for over 35 years now. We are incredibly proud of her. And we just can't wait to hear what she has to share with us today. And helping us is our very own co-host, Renee Pollan. And she is going to talk to us and lead the discussion on what to expect in skin at the end of life. So without further ado, Dr. Black, Renee. Welcome to RN Huddle. This is Renee Pollan. And today I have the pleasure to speak again with our very own Dr. Joyce Black, a professor here at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, College of Nursing, and a committed expert within the NPIAP Board of Directors. While providing many published articles, tools, and other evidence-based resources for pressure injury prevention. Worldwide Pressure Injury Prevention Day was recently on November 18th, and this day is to recognize all the efforts in prevention and to build community awareness that we all can play a role in prevention. Dr. Black is here to share her wealth of knowledge and resources related to end-of-life pressure injuries. Welcome back, Dr. Black. Thank you, Renee. So many of our listeners are actively involved in pressure injury prevention, But when it comes to end of life and acquiring a pressure injury, there are often discussions surrounding whether it's avoidable or unavoidable. What would you advise during these discussions? You're talking about discussions with the family and the patient or the nurses or both. Usually uh, discussions come about between nurses and providers and quality management, deciphering what exactly occurred and whether it was unavoidable? Well, I think the goals at end of life are for the family and the patient to say their goodbyes and to say, I love you, I forgive you, will you forgive me? All those things that I I classify as work. I mean, that's the work of dying is to leave earth without a lot of baggage for the people left behind. I don't think that includes having unulcerated skin or intact skin. I don't think that's the goal. Now, obviously there are people that, I'm sure everybody that's listening has had this experience where I call the family to the bedside because I can see modeling to the kneecaps. I'm pretty convinced Mm -hmm. that, you know, this patient's gonna die in a short period of time and then they don't. And so I feel, I can't say I feel foolish, but I. You know, they rushed in to get to the bedside because it's it's the end. And mm-hmm. then four days later, mom is still here. Well, right. at that moment in time, it's still the work of the dying process. It's still all those emotional pieces that need to go on. 
And for the nurse to interrupt that and say, you know, it's time to turn on your left side. I, I don't, I don't think it's going to be well received. Now, now, alongside of that is when the patient doesn't die. And the fact that I didn't turn them, now they have a pressure injury on their sacrum. I classify that as unavoidable because I have to go back to that moment in time where that decision was made and put into play all the factors at that moment in time. I, I can't see in the future. So I can't mm -hmm. see that she's not going to die today. I, I can't see all of that. So I would classify that as unavoidable. You, you did the right thing for the patient and family at the time. And yes, it led to an injury, but it was still the right thing to do. So typically like end of life, we still turn them, but at times family will say, oh, please don't turn. Are you calling that unavoidable? Yeah, I'm really looking at that period of time, not in the six months of a hospice stay. I'm not looking at all okay. six months. Okay. I'm looking at that period of time when they're actively dying. Like I was saying, model to the kneecaps, the patients in crisis care and hospice, this is the end. Then skin is not, it's not a priority. The problem is sometimes they don't die when we expect them to. So it goes back to what you were just saying. Uh, what's the family's wishes at this point in time? And without belaboring it, yeah, there is a risk to the skin. If you so don't. it's important to document those physiologic changes as well. And because obviously there's those noticeable skin changes and we should show or show that in our documentation that they are in the process of actively dying. And these are the signs we see. Correct. Exactly. So there are many terms as well to describe end-of-life pressure injuries, such as skin failure, Kennedy terminal ulcer, you know, Trombley, Brennan, terminal skin tissue injury. What tips do you have to share in documentation in, ter in those terms? Well, I think the first thing I would ask the audience to think about is that this is not a pressure injury at all. And I'm going to share a little bit of the science we explored just a couple of days ago, Renee. So this is really hot off the press. Mm -hmm. No one except the people who attended that conference have ever seen or heard this. NPIP just had a conference tackling this very issue of what do we call this phenomenon at the end of life? Because we had some evidence that it really wasn't a pressure injury at all. And, and so what is it? I don't know that I know yet, but here's the data that we looked at. We looked at biopsies of patients that had died and they had this dark purple area on the coccyx, low, low sacrum coccyx, uh, almost perfectly round. And it showed nothing histologically like a pressure injury at all. There was no ischemia change. There was no inflammatory cells, didn't look or act at all like a pressure injury. Then we also looked at thermographic images. So this is living tissue, you know, actively perfused. And it showed no perfusion anomalies and it showed no hyperinflammatory changes. Neither of those would go along with pressure injuries. So what is it? I don't know, I, but I do think we should stop calling it a pressure injury because neither of those samples had any signs of pressure injury at all. 
I don't, I don't know. I, we talked a lot at the meeting about this term skin failure. And to be honest, we really struggled. I struggled. I struggle with it a lot because what I'm looking at is a part of the body that, well, let me back up. Let me establish that the palm of the patient's hand is 1% of their body surface area. So I'm looking at a body part that's 1% or less than 1% of body surface area. I can't say that skin failure, what function of the skin was lost because it's intact and it's discolored. So tell me what function was lost. And let me correlate it to a couple other organs. If you lost 1% of renal function or 1% of left ventricular function, I don't think you'd even know it. So it's simply because we can see it that we've classified it as skin failure. So the group- It's very complex. Yeah, the group walked away from the skin failure label in lieu of waiting for a more scientific label. So the you know, jury's out. We, we actually broke up into seven small working groups to try to get a handle on what is actually going on. You know, is there a marker- immunological markers or a marker in the sweat? Is there something that we could hold up and say, oh, this is not a pressure injury. This is a skin change in the dying patient. It's got nothing to do with pressure. And we see that in the trombly injuries. They're not always on the sacrum. No, right. So what do you foresee in the future? I mean, we're, we're waiting on research. We're wait, waiting on science to show us. Are we waiting on technology, labs? I guess the jury's out on that. Uh, you know, one of the things that I concluded the conference with is we've got five groups out of the seven working on needs for research in the future. And we had two groups dealing with what do we do now? What We still have a patient to care for this afternoon. So how, how do we take this data and run with it? And the conclusion was that we describe what we see. We don't label it an ulcer or an injury of any kind because in a hospital setting, you know this well, Renee, if we classify this thing as deep tissue pressure injury, we have to report it as mm-hmm. hospital acquired. Exactly. We may get dinged for that in our PSIO3 reports when we don't think it has anything to do with that. So we ended up stating that you should describe it as a change in the color of the skin. You aren't gonna know that the patient's gonna die. You don't have a crystal ball. Three Mm -hmm. days later, the patient died. So is it a marker of impending death? Probably, but we don't have any way to say that with certainty. So don't classify it as a pressure injury at all. Don't use that term. Because I know in the clinical setting, we're pressed to label the type of wound that it is. Right. So what I'm hearing is, you know that they're actively dying. They're in that stage. They're showing signs that we can then document, utilize descriptions, describe it, measure it. Yeah. I'm, I mean, as a corollary in the dying patient, I don't think there's a lot of people who chart the death rattle. I hear the death rattle. What they, what they say is there's secretions accumulating in the airway. So they're describing the phenomenon rather than labeling it with a term. Just be very careful if you work in acute care. You don't want to call this thing something that it's not and then be stuck with you know, the penalty. And you know, for that reason, the avoidable unavoidable may fall by the wayside going forward. If we can get this distinguished as a feature of the dying process, 
not an error in anybody's clinical care. I think it'll be a huge bump for the folks in acute care, caring for dying patients, and certainly those in hospice and palliative care also. So when I'm thinking about the legalities that can surround this, when documenting, because documentation is very, very important, especially if you have to come back to it in years later, would it be important to describe the other overall health systems that may be failing or that could contribute to this discoloration that they have? Well, if you're linking it to the failure of other organs maybe leading to this failure, there is some thought about that because clearly, you know, people have multiple things going wrong. Uh, we have a survey out right now from NPIAP asking people who have seen this skin color change in dying patients, what other body systems are diseased? What are they dying from is actually the question. And there's a number we've got, I just looked at the data last night again. There's a number of people who write, they have multi-organ system failure. You've got pulmonary failure, they're on ventilators. I've got liver failure, heart failure, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Then the other big group um, is cancer. And, and so does this thing represent itself predominantly in patients with oncologic disease? I, I have no idea. We're a long way from home. You know, we mm -hmm. sort of just are getting to first base on this. And it's going to take a lot of work on a lot of people's part to see it. I don't think we see it in every dying patient. But when we see it, because it presents as a purple or maroon area, it tends to get classified as DTI. And I strongly discourage people from using that phrase. Mm -hmm. It's once again that, that push to label it something. Right. But we need to take a step back and look at the whole whole picture of what's going on with that patient system-wide and within the dying process and yep. document the skin changes. So, so there's probably no research then about how often this occurs, right? Cause I mean, it's probably under-documented is my guess. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, the survey that I sent out uh, via NPIP asked that question, how often do you see this happen? Now, I can't compute an incidence from that because I, I, I know little. I was trying to figure out a way to develop a research question without violating anybody's HIPAA rights. I didn't want nurses from 5,000 hospitals trying to go back and pull a medical record to look for this. So I simply asked what they recalled about the skin change at end of life. And so for, because of that, I can't I can't find out that there are a 600 bed hospital or a 12 bed hospice unit. So I can't, the question you're asking is absolutely, was the first question for the small working groups was what's the incidence of this problem? I don't believe it's a rare disease. I don't, I don't believe it belongs in that bucket, but I actually don't know. And, and what you just said is, is spot on. There may be people that die with this skin change that we haven't rolled them over in a long time. Therefore, we don't know. You know, so maybe the morticians would be the ones to give us the better data on how frequently they see it, because there would be no, no reason not to roll the patient over at that point in time. Yeah, I wish I knew. I, I don't know. I'm thinking about when you talked about, you know, they're, they're not turned for a while. So are end-of-life pressure injuries commonly defensible in court? I mean, families a lot of time request to not reposition, but what advice would you give? 
Yeah, I don't think I'd worry about being sued those. I think if your documentation is adequate that this was a patient who was terminally ill, you were working with the family, the family was at the bedside, particularly if the patient is having dyspnea, it would be very difficult to turn them without increasing the dyspnea. And you don't mm-hmm. want to do that because that's a much more sensitive and agonizing symptom than a change in the skin. I would say that 80% of the respondents on that survey said that when they saw the skin color change, the patient was not conscious enough to report pain. So if you would be creating a worse situation by turning them and increasing their dyspnea just to prevent a pressure injury, I think you're going the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't worry about being sued. I think your documentation should hold up. The only time that's not going to be true is if you classify a patient as likely dying and then they don't. And of course, we have that all the time. And we have that in the critically ill. It's like they are at death's door. And then we, you know, we do several things. We resuscitate them with fluids and meds and machines and they come back. And then two days later, they have all these wounds. That becomes a harder legal case. Because then, you know, should you have been doing the right thing? Should you have had them on the right bed? Should you have had their heels elevated? Put them in a prophylactic dressing? Should those things have been done? Because at that time you were trying to save their life versus the patient who you're, you're allowing to die. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And, you know, going back to addressing the family's wishes is also important to explain and educate them too of, you know, the different options and just making sure that the patient is comfortable exactly. in the end. So, yeah. And that's, that's usually the request of the family is they switch to comfort care. And part of that, you know, I, I could argue this either way, right? I could say you're going to be more comfortable if you get off your back for a while. But if in turning you off your back for a while, you can't breathe, I've lost my argument. Mm-hmm. Documentation is key. Do you have anything else to add for our listeners today? This was all great information. Really good. Yeah, discussion. well, this was this was brand new information. And so we're looking to increase the research on this, we, we need to add clarity to this problem. But I do believe the conclusion was pretty strong in most people's heads that this color change may have nothing to do with pressure at all. It didn't, mm-hmm. it didn't histologically look like pressure injury. It didn't thermographically look like pressure injury. So we, we may have answered our own question that this is something else in entirety, whether it's an immune problem. We don't know any of that, but exciting to, you know, really Renee unwind a phenomenon that was described 40 years ago. And, and it's been sitting there, the Kennedy terminal ulcer Mm -hmm. since 83. And we've never really taken a scientific look at that condition and it's time. It's more than time. Right. Well, thank you again, Dr. Black for sharing your expertise with us again. Love having you. As we all know, patients at the end of life are more vulnerable to pressure and rely on others to care for them. It is important to educate the families about pressure injuries as well as as what they can do to help prevent them from occurring while maintaining comfort. As we discussed, documentation of these education opportunities also is critical, and PIAP has further resources on this topic, and we encourage you to explore MPIAP's website for various educational materials 
and do take a peek at other NPIAP podcasts. Until we meet again, thank you. Wow, thank you both so much for that intriguing discussion on what to expect in skin at the end of life stage. And we hope that you've also appreciated our nod to National Pressure Injury Prevention Day with our very special guest, Dr. Joyce Black, and our very own Renee Pollan, who we know is the All Things Wounds nurse. Thank you both for sharing your expertise. We really appreciate it. I know that I've benefited from this discussion, and I hope you have too. And we hope that you continue to get good information and insight and expertise right here on RN Huddle. So thank you all. Appreciate your time and listening today, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to RN Huddle. To stay connected, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at UNMC CNE or check out unmc.edu slash CNE for more program information.